0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: When it comes to oversight, transparency and consistent ethics in government, you can never rest on your laurels. That's why the Durable Project on Government Oversight, or POGO, has delivered to the new Congress a new set of legislative and to the White House for the first time executive action recommendations for those very qualities. Here with highlights, POGO's Director of Public Policy, Liz Hempowitz. Liz, good to have you back.
0: Great to be here with you.
1: So, tell us about this list, this biennial list that you uh, put out. There is so much to be thought of these days in this whole area of transparency, oversight, ethics. Where do you begin?
0: Yeah, you know, we call it our baker's dozen because we try to fit all our recommendations. This one has 91 individual recommendations, but we try to fit them under 13 broad umbrellas of policy areas. Some of them are long legacy issues of POGO, so smart defense spending, uh, transparency in government decision-making, increasing whistleblower protections and protecting inspectors general from political interference. But then there's also a couple of newer areas for us. So one in particular is really taking A a very critical look at the structure for individuals to push back or to be made whole after the government has deprived them of constitutional rights. And so this is both in the context of non citizens, where we're seeing expedited removal procedures and real lack of access to due process that is promised to non citizens under the Constitution. You know, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments apply to citizens and non citizens alike. But we've seen, you know, a lot of changes in the immigration system that really undermine those due process protections. But also, you know, we've we're looking at issues like qualified immunity and the lack of legal remedy to sue the federal government if they have deprived you of your rights. It is a lengthy to-do list. It's certainly POGO's to-do list for the next couple of years. These are the issues that we'll really be focused on. But I'm really hoping that Congress and the White House will take a look at it and, you know, kind of make it their to-do list as well.
1: Now, for the first time, you do have executive action recommendations in addition to legislative. I wish I had the pen contract for the White House because there has been a large volume of them. And it seems like there's a big box of pens there every time the president signs one, maybe one letter per pen or something. But what are some of the executive actions? Is there anything left yet that he has not done so far?
0: Yeah, and you know, you know, I guess uh, one thing I should specify is that when we're talking about executive action, we're not necessarily talking about executive orders, right? So sure. these are some of these are things that the White House can just direct agency heads to do. So one is one in particular that I think I've talked with you about before is the Office of Legal Counsel over at the Department of Justice. You know, it's this office that operates without a lot of transparency, but issues opinions on legal issues of the day that are considered binding on the executive branch. And so really, this office that is not subject To transparency requirements. You know, they don't really release information under the Freedom of Information Act. They get to decide um, it's at their discretion which ones of their opinions they make public. So really what we're talking about is an office that really promulgates secret law. And so one of our recommendations, right, is that the president can direct the attorney general to publish all these opinions unless they deal with classified information. So that's something that you don't need an executive order to do.
1: That idea of secret law being issued in secret There's probably nothing more corrosive to faith and trust in the government than that kind of activity.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I think in a a similar vein, you know, there's also the Office of Management and Budget within the White House that issues also secret opinions that concern apportionment. And so they make these decisions about specifically how to spend money that Congress has appropriated, but they don't do so with transparency. Also, you know, and I think this came up during President Trump's first impeachment, where we were talking about withholding aid that Congress had appropriated to go to Ukraine. And this all came out of the Office of Management and Budget. They made a decision not to release that aid. And so we're we're talking about is, you know, I think really we take a step back. I know I'm the one who threw out OMB and apportionments, but really what we're talking about is Congress maintaining control of the power of the purse, which is a fundamental part of our constitution and our, and our system of government.
1: We're speaking with Liz Hempelwitz. She is director of public policy at the Project on Government Oversight. And some of the issues you bring up, protecting whistleblowers, supporting effective independent internal watchdogs, I guess that's IGs, isn't most of the work done on those particular issues?
0: I wish. I wish. You know, I think, uh, you know.
1: Not too many people laugh out loud at my questions.
0: (laughs) I know you must be joking because you've read Pogo's work. No, I mean, you know, I think uh, in the whistleblower space, you know, it is a real dire situation for whistleblowers right now, for federal whistleblowers, for a couple reasons. One is that the legal protections that they are offered are not affirmative protections. Yes, there is a legal prohibition against retaliating against whistleblowers, but really the way the legal structure of these protections is set up is that it just creates an avenue for individuals to try to enforce those protections after they've been retaliated against. And I would be remiss not to highlight that the bureaucratic agency that almost all Title V, which is like the most rank and file federal employees, the, the agency that they have to go to to enforce their legal protections hasn't had a single member in two years, hasn't had a quorum in in 4 years. And so, you know, there's a backlog of over 3,000 cases, but really, you know, these whistleblowers are stuck in what I've been referring to as bureaucratic purgatory because they can't go to court. And so, one of the big things that we've been pushing is that they should have access to jury trials. Federal whistleblowers are the only segment of the labor force that can't have their employment disputes heard by a jury of their peers. And I have a feeling that once they are granted this access to jury trials and I believe it will happen and I'm hoping it'll happen this Congress, I think what will end up seeing is much more favorable case law in whistleblower's favor.
1: Okay, let me ask you about this one, reasserting congressional power, because it seems that each president stretches the bounds of executive privilege. I mean, when I was young, the word imperial presidency came into vogue, and that's eight or nine presidents ago. And here we have what really is an imperial type of presidency. And so how can Congress get its own power back, which it has already under the Constitution? It is the first branch of government.
0: Congress and the legislative branch is arguably intended to be the most powerful actor in the system, right? Because they are the body that is supposed to be most accountable to the people they represent. And as you mentioned, we've seen power between the legislative and executive branch grow steadily unequal and really heavily in favor of the executive branch. I would say, you know, just to go back to what we were talking about earlier, the Office of Legal Counsel, I think that's where a lot of this comes from. They are the office that interprets executive power, and they have a real bent slash bias towards the executive branch and increasing their powers. So a couple areas that we've highlighted in that section of the Baker's Dozen are how Congress should rebalance authority in how the executive branch exercises emergency powers, which have been delegated to the president and to the executive branch by Congress. And so I think this came up most famously when President Trump declared a national emergency at the southern border to build the border wall right after Congress considered appropriating money to it and decided not to. And so this was probably as clear of a rebuke to Congress's power of the purse as you were going to get under the National Emergencies Act. And then despite broad bipartisan pushback in Congress, they weren't able to to reach that veto-proof threshold to overturn the president's action. And part of that is just the way the law has evolved since the National Emergencies Act went into effect has really favored the executive branch. And so we're long past time for Congress to kind of flip that. And our recommendation there has been, rather than asking Congress to affirmatively overturn the president's decision, it should be the president has, you know, access to these emergency authorities for a brief period of time without congressional authorization. And then, you know, after 30 days, Congress can either vote to extend the emergency or not. And then really by doing that, you know, and flipping it so that it doesn't require a veto proof majority to overturn the president's action, you make it much easier for Congress to have its voice heard.
1: And let me ask you this. Pogo is one of the more senior of these types of organizations in Washington that looks at this kind of thing. I think you go back to sometime around 1982 or so. There's no shortage of people throwing things at Congress these days. How do you get heard? Is it possible to get heard above yeah. above the crowd here? Yeah,
0: well, we're we're persistent. You know, <laughs> we are uh, we also you know, I think one of the benefits to be Pogo has been around for 40 years now and we have a really good reputation. We are a nonpartisan organization that is really committed to the principle of nonpartisan. Partisanship, And so we have relationships across the aisle and offices know that when we're making policy recommendations, it's not based off of kind of the news of the day. It's really based off of, you know, what we're seeing currently, yes, but also what we've seen over the last 40 years. You know, I think especially when we're talking about whistleblower protections, you know, we're an organization that was founded by whistleblowers. And so they've been such a central tenant to what we do and how we think about our work that we have the benefit of just kind of this very long history of working in this space very closely and paying very close attention. And I think one thing that the general public misses sometimes when we're talking about Congress is that the the staffers that work for these members of Congress have just extremely large portfolios, you know, and it's very difficult to become a a true expert in every issue you are expected to to staff your boss on. You know, we're really, you know, I see that I mentioned, you know, that I see this kind of list as a to-do list for Congress, but really, you know, we also just want to serve as a resource to these staffers who haven't had the benefit of working on these issues for decades. You know, we can talk to them and explain to them why we've seen the changes in the law made, you know, what was happening at that time and really bring that benefit of that experience.
1: Liz Hempowitz is director of public policy at the Project on Government Oversight. As always, thanks so much.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: We'll post this interview, plus a link to that baker's dozen at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.